Hello and welcome to the second ever Everlifting podcast. Today I will bring you part two of my interview with Dave Tate. If you haven't checked out the first part yet, I suggest you do so because you do not want to miss it. Anyway, that's enough of my BS. Part two with Dave Tate coming up now. Enjoy. So let's get into the repetition effort method. First, I want to say there's a great video that you posted. I don't know how long ago. I think it's from a seminar where you go through all all the stages. What's the name of that? It's a, if they search um, just my name, Dave Tate, supplemental. I think all they need to say, ter- or search is supplemental lifts and it will pop up the article because there's a long article that goes with the video. Oh, yeah, right. They, they will get to both, but that that's the hierarchy of how I think. Dude, when when I saw that, that, that blew my mind. I mean, I, I had read a lot about uh, the conjugate system, about Westside and all that stuff, but that really put... I mean, it made me understand it on such a much greater level. So I'm going to link that uh, with this post so people can find it. And they definitely need to read it and watch it. Yeah, one thing about that, which when I work with strength coaches that are not powerlifting coaches, I, mean, I can't tell them how to train football players. I don't do it. So mm-hmm. where I always start is I'll ask them what they think the three most important lifts that they can do are that carry over to the field for their athletes. And if they've been coaching for 20, 25 years, they, they better have an answer for me. And they do. It may not be the squat bench and deadlift. It might be, you know, 40 yard dash, clean, and squat. You know, who knows? Sure. Everybody's different. But then what I do is I make them the squat, bench, and deadlift the same way they, it's hierarchied in the conjugate method that I use for my lifters. I'm like, if those are your three main lifts or your three main you know, attributes or whatever you want to call them, then what if you never trained them, but you only trained those things that made it strong? What would be the max effort exercises that you know make that clean stronger? You know, what's the dynamic work that we would have to be able to do here for this clean, you know, and then just start working the hierarchy down, which what you're speaking about or asking about is the repetition method, which starts to kick in after that first action. Well, let's say uh, warm ups excluded. It kicks in after the first exercise, which is either the max effort movement or the dynamic effort movement. That second exercise in the hierarchy I call a supplemental exercise. That supplemental exercise is usually going to be trained in a strength range. So repetitions between four, six, you know, sometimes eight in hard and heavy, you know. So, you know, that's that's grounded not just in history, but it's grounded in experience. Everybody knows, you know, reps of, you know, four, six and eight is probably a little high. Three, let's say three, five you know, eight, you know, those are the best strength building reps. Well, then what I like to ask is if, if you know, if you've been powerlifting for a while, for me, I knew every time my close grip bench press went up, my bench went up. Every time my floor press went up, my bench went up. Anybody that's been powerlifting for a while that trains any accessory lifts, 
they're going to know there's some correlations that they can find. Those are really what's going to end up being your max effort exercises as far as builders go. There are testers, but that's a different conversation. But the, you know, the, from the builders, you need to think of what supplemental exercises are going to build the movements that build your squat bench and deadlift. So what, what movements can I do that's going to help my close grip incline become stronger? You know, well, it could be a JM press, it could be a close grip, you know, bench press, it could be, you know, pretty much anything close grip, you know, anything that's going to really pound my lats, you know, or be, and that's what goes into that slot. Then after supplemental exercises, there may be one, there may be two, I try to keep it at one, unless it's a beginner, as, as we discussed earlier, beginners can handle more volume. So then we get into accessories, and that's a lot of times just kind of like junk work, right? Push down, side raises, stuff like that. But I think you still got to think, you know, take it down one more hierarchy. Like if, if the close, if the JM press builds my close grip bench press, well then what's going to build my JM press that falls lower in the hierarchy? Well, shit, that's triceps, you know, so extensions or pushdowns. Well, shit, extensions are going to work better than pushdowns to build the JM press. So now that's going to get trained at a higher repetition range because it's lower in the chain. And it's yeah. also now you're trying to build muscle at this point. Like, well, JM had big fucking triceps, so I got to put on some big triceps. So that's where the reps are going to go in the 6 to 12 range. And then after the accessories, you know, I got a category I just call prehab, but now I call it free time. It's, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's just when I program it, it's I give the lifters 15 minutes to do whatever they want to do. So it could be something they really, they could be their fucking curls. It could be, you know, single leg work. You know, everybody has something that they saw that they want to try. Glute bridges, you know, as long as it's not going to fuck up anything else. And it's really hard to fuck something up in 15 minutes. Yeah, and when it's small exercise, I mean, you probably don't want them to go and take a max deadlift or something. But no, they, well, they can't. They're not going to want to. I mean, no. usually at this time of the training, they just want to leave. But because they've the abs and the lower back have already been put in there as well. But it, it's thinking up a chain, right? Or actually, it's it's not even that. It's thinking down downstream like everybody wants to think up like what can you do to build everything up if you start at the top of the pyramid and then branch it out what will build this what will build this what will build this and, and let it all float you know then everything that you do in the training session is going to have purpose people you need to see this because it puts everything into such a great perspective but I want to ask you, with the repetition work, do you go to absolute failure there, or are you... If it's supplemental, so if it's high up on the chain, mm -hmm. then I like it to be one or two reps shy of failure. So keep in mind, that could be a close grip board press off a three board, and it's going to be two sets of five. Well, obviously, you don't want the first set of five to be two reps shy of failure. No. You know, I would, you know, so it's... Now, the second one, I would like it to be one rep shy of failure. Now, when you start to get down into the accessory work, which is more bodybuilding work, 
I, I like it to go to, I like it to failure, but I like it to failure without cheating. And I like to have a little bit slower tempo. You know, one thing that I've noticed here is when you get lower in the, in this lower, deeper into the training session, the exercises have less dynamic correspondence than the bigger ones do. They're necessary because they build the bigger ones, but it's not like an 80 pound side raise is going to make your bench any stronger than a fucking 30 pound side raise. No, no. So why it's an injury ratio here again. So when you start to get down there into the bodybuilding repetition work, I like to see slower tempos being utilized, you know, a peak contraction or whatever you want to call it, you know, and, and more tight technique. Like you don't need to swing the shit, anything that you can do to make it so you can use lighter weight to get a pump in the muscle or to get the muscle stimulated is what needs to be done. Yeah. And that's the thing because you will actually work the muscle better that way too. And yes, and that's the goal of those movements. You know, nobody gives a shit what you can curl. You're only doing the curls so you can keep your biceps strong so you don't tear them or for whatever reason. Hey, now, there was a time the curl was part of powerlifting, basically. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of opportunity there to do a lot of bodybuilding methods that I think a lot of powerlifters find fun but they just don't know where to put them in. Like you can do strip sets there. You can do pre-exhausting. You can do all this other kind of stuff. And because the weight's going to be lighter and it's going to be more methodical on how you're going to do it, it's easier to recover from. Now, if you do them super hard and super intense, like Ronnie Coleman or a branch Warren, or, you know, one of those guys that train, you know, outside the box insane. Now you're yeah. going to have to recover from that. So, you know, it's, I understand why they do what they do and the reasons why they do it, but you're a power lifter. You know, you don't have to train those small muscles that way. You know, that's it's different, you know, intentions and you have to recover from everything that you do. So I'm really big on that. If somebody wants to just throw something, something in a program, well, then what's going to come out? What's the trade? Yeah, and I mean, it, it can keep uh, motivation up as well because you have a little more variety. Well, there's already a lot of variety in the conjugate system, but even more uh, where lifters can actually play a bit and do what they think are fun. You know, and if it's a beginner, you're still trying to teach them how to work hard. You know, there's the pain element associated to this. So if it's a beginner and you say, look, I want you to go outside and do walking lunges so you can't do them anymore. You know, that's going to burn like a motherfucker. After the first couple times of them doing it, they're never going to get sore from doing it. You know, so. And there's one more aspect, especially with beginners there, that uh, they don't usually know how to tense every muscle. Mm -hmm. There are two ways in my that I can think of to really teach that. And one is what, I don't know, do you know who uh, Pavel Tsatsoulin is? Yes. He has he calls it hard style where you basically do exercises where you want to tense up as much as possible. And the other way is to do the bodybuilding work. God, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that is a that's a vital 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 point because um, I've been asked many times before in the past, 
are isolation exercises important for a power lifter? And I say, yes, they are, you know, because any high skilled lifter should be able to flex any muscle in their body without having to move it. You know, yes. you know how people can bounce their tits. Yeah. You know, they should be able to do that to their triceps, their biceps, their quads, calves. Well, how do you learn that mind-muscle connection? Well, mo- the easiest way to do it is through those really tight isolation exercises, the dumb ones, like concentration curls, you know, yeah. that, that are so isolated that the only thing that moves is that bicep. Because when, when you become a better lifter and you have somebody like Louie tell you when you bench press, you have to pull the bar apart and flex your triceps. Well, if you don't even know what the fuck, how to flex your triceps, you're just going to pull the bar apart and wear your wrist out. It's a, it's a vital component that I think gets extremely overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I see it a lot of times. I mean, even people that are fairly strong may, may not know how to, they never feel their lats, for instance. Yes. Well, you need to find a way to teach them how to use their lats. It might be straight arm pull downs or whatever. But you need to find something that I, where they can't fuck it up. It's funny. You had to pick the hardest, the hardest muscle group for anybody. It's true, though. It's the last. If I could give advice to anybody working with beginner lifters, it's teach them how to feel their lats. Yeah, those are strong muscles. Oh, my God. I've had when Meadows was bringing pro bodybuilders out, you know, I couldn't believe how many of them had huge jacked up backs, but they didn't know how to. I mean, you could see their traps were big or their, you know, their uh, shit, the rotator cuff was yeah. huge but the lower lats you know so we're trying to teach them how to focus on the part of the back that they had that needed better development and they were so used to overpowering the rows with their traps and their you know their rotator cuff that in erectors that they didn't know how to work them so we had to show them you know so this is happening i mean it's not like we're sitting here talking about something that's mystical that happens to very few people this is ifbb pro bodybuilders that didn't know how to activate their lats and as soon as they get turned on and they understood how to contract them the complete their complete back development changed because they quit working their traps on every fucking road they do exactly and that's what's going to happen and the traps they are the traps are amazingly strong and they will take over whenever they can and that's the same with uh, like people working their side delts or whatever they do it with their traps they think they're wor- working their delts but they're working their traps exactly exactly usually when i see big traps i'm looking for the lat weakness yeah from a powerlifting perspective how important are the lats from i mean it can be debated and i've seen it debated and i understand both sides of the debate if you want to talk about how how much do the lats contract to move the weight? Yeah, I see that. But the lats have to stabilize the load. So to me, the lats are extremely important. So if let's go back to what we just spoke about, the ability to be able to control and flex a muscle. If you, if you have somebody stand in a, just a standing position and they put their arms into the bottom of a bench position, and then all they do is a lat spread. They just flex their lats. They're going to notice their hands come forward. So, okay, if that right there is a clue that the lats are doing something 
in the bottom of the bench beyond just stabilization. I'm not saying that they're going to be more important than the packed shoulders, triceps. That's naive. That's stupid. You know, but if your lats can't create that solid base to be able to keep the bar from going side to side, you know, or front to back, now you don't have the stability. And especially when you bench, when you pull it out, you got to let that bar seed into you. You know, it's, you, you can't just take the bar and hold it out. You got to let that bar, you know, push your shoulder blades and everything into the bench. You should take out the bar with the lats. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then even there, you'll see a lot of advanced lifters. Somebody will be telling them, hold, hold, hold. And you'll watch the bar actually go down about a half inch because that naga hide and the foam will begin to compress when that loads yeah. in their hands. Yeah. So you don't want to start to lower while that pad's still compressing. And well, that whole time your lats are need to be tight to be able to stabilize that load. So that's the bench. Now on the squat, you know, hell yes, because if your lats can't stay tight, you're going to fall forward. Yes. You know, and then then you're fucked. Now you're in a position to where you better have really strong erectors because you're going to be doing a good morning real quick. You yeah. know, if your if your lats are strong and can stay tight, you're never going to get in that position now in the deadlift it should just be obvious yeah you know, the, the lats are part of the deadlift so the lats are extremely important i think it's one of the most important muscles in powerlifting i think it's one of the few muscles that should be trained four times a week you know however you want to divide that up is fine i sometimes will have people do you know vertical rows or vertical pulling on one day and uh, horizontal pulling on another one Sometimes I'll have them kind of do heavier weight movements on one day, lighter on the other, like face pulls and TRX crap, you know, that kind of stuff on a, on a light day, um, a band pull apart. So say the light, the lighter days, band pull bars, face pulls, TRX rows, fat, you know, chin ups, laying horizontal and that kind of crap where the other day would be more of the rows and the heavy pull downs. It's just something has to be done for the back every day i'm glad you say that man because that's exactly what i have my lifters do every day they do some kind of upper back work and it's usually uh, along those lines either rows of some kind i do a lot of face pulls because i people who get sh nagging shoulder issues i see that uh, face pulls helps tremendously a lot of times here's the here's the thing with this too is you know Coaching lifters is kind of a mindfuck too. So if, if you're telling your lifters they need to do their lats every day, you kind of know at least one of those days they're, they're going to skip it. But you still, you still covered the minimum of twice a week. It's better than it, twice a week they skip once and they skip 50% of their lat work. For my lifters, part of their warm-up before every training session is to do hanging leg raises because I want the hip distraction and the lower back distraction but it also works the abdominals very well. So actually, I'm, and I want them with the elbow cuffs. I don't want them hanging you know, from a bar. Mm. But even with the elbow cuffs, I'm getting some shoulder distraction, I'm getting lower back distraction, and I'm getting you know, abdominal work done. And then I want them to do pull down abs, kind of like Louis shows, because every time you pull down to do that movement, you're stretching your hamstrings. My, so as a warm-up, they're getting a little bit of ab work, but they're active. They're, they're doing mobility and, and priming the hamstrings for more. 
So the pull down abs, and then I have them do bent knee reverse hypers or reverse hypers. It depends how strong they are. If they're not that strong, just a bent knee reverse hyper gets the lower back and the ass trained, you know, and, and warmed up and primed. Then I have them do face pulls, and then sometimes a lat exercise. I, or, and I also have them do glute ham raises with body weight. So it could be three sets of each done in a circuit. Doesn't take long. I mean, we're talking 10 minutes tops. And then usually on the squat and deadlift days, their, their accessories are pull-down abs, hanging leg raises, glute ham raises, and reverse hypers. Done heavier then or? Uh... Yes, yes. Now, I'm, now they're actually training them. But here's the thing. It serves as a great warm-up, but it also serves in case they want to bolt the fuck out and I don't see them. They still did a minimum of those sure. movements to at least maintain the development that they have. That warm-up isn't going to, you know, push them forward. It's not going to make them stronger in those movements after an initial level. I mean, yeah. when, they, when they first start, no, they can't do one hanging leg raise. They can barely do one glute ham raise. But with body weight movements, the more frequency they have, the easier it becomes. So after a while, it's, you know, two sets of 10 on the glute ham is no big deal. And then when they have to do it later in the training session, they got to use med balls or do eccentric only, or there's multiple ways to train that kind of crap. But I, I do that for the same reason as training the lats every single day. I know they're not going to do it every time, especially on upper body day. I guarantee they're probably not doing the pull down abs and they're not doing the reverse hypers, but they are doing, you know, the, the band pull bars and the face pulls and so forth. But I still have them doing reverse hypers, even if you take those two out six times a week. The reverse hyper, it's so uh, connected to uh, West Side and conjugate training. But the machine isn't very common here in Sweden. Uh, do you have uh, uh, like a recommendation for something else if you don't have a reverse hyper? What yeah, yeah, do? and, and I, don't always, I don't always have it as a... Um, well, this last training cycle, I did have it twice a week because I have two of them in here now. So one of them, we just keep loaded really happy. The other one, we can loaded light. So there's, there's different ways to do it. Um, I think you can do a bent knee reverse hyper. You can't do it really. You can manually load it, mm. you know, but that's exhausting on you as a coach. But it's great for the glutes and the lower back. And that's just, they can do that laying on the end of a bench press because the legs aren't straight, you know? So, so it's basically doing a reverse hyper with a bent knee. All right, so it can accomplish pretty close to the same thing, except for the just big distraction that you have when it pulls you under. Uh, Pull-throughs are another good substitution for that, but it's, it's really anything that is gonna work the, the, the whole posterior chain. So it could be an RDL if it's done light enough, you know, it could be a stiff leg deadlift if it's done light enough. So there, there's a lot of substitutions for it. And it's it's not, I mean, it is a mainstay because it has a lot of benefits, but more lifters have probably broken all-time world records in the squat and deadlift not doing reverse hypers than have. Yeah, sure. It's just, it's a very, what I really like about it is it's a great way to add volume and workload without having a high recovery demand. Yeah, you could also try uh, what 
Russian weightlifters, you, you see them basically every training session. They start with the back raises with a barbell on their back. Yes, yes. You know, it's the same concept. They're warming up the posterior chain. Yes, and anytime you can put erector work, low back work as part of the, as part of the warm-up, like I said, it's, it's just a win all around. Now, yes. now, if they're getting lower back pumps and all that kind of stuff, then it's probably too much. But it's... It's it's vital. The lower back and abs are so critical to powerlifting that it can't be understated. No, know, it can't or, be done. No, it can't be overstated. I mean, it's just it's huge. It's 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 everything. You know, it's, I like to the, I like to put the analogy out is if you're going to have somebody squat and that transfer of force from the ground to the bar. And if you pulled the torso out and put a marshmallow in there, had them squat <laughs> to the bottom, and as soon as they, you know, drive their feet into the ground and start transferring that force, it's just going to get lost in the marshmallow and never travel to the bar. <laughs> That's true, though. Now, if you take the marshmallow out and you put a boulder in, that transfer of force is going to go straight to the bar. You know, that, that's how important this is, is in, in breathing you know, is, is a big part of it as well. But if you don't have the, the, the oblique and the transverse abdominus and the abdominus and lower back and the psoas, if all that shit isn't strong, I don't care how you breathe. It's not matter. You know, so it's one in one. And talking about stuff, we mentioned the lats before that even very strong people or accomplished lifters or bodybuilders don't know how to use them properly, but fuck breathing. I've met so many strong people and I teach them how to actually use their belly and their their mind is blown because they've never done it. They've been breathing into their chest mm -hmm. the entire time. The funny thing there is as soon as they breathe out, the bar goes forward. So it's, it's, it's crazy. And it, it's just one of those things that you need to learn. And if you don't know what we're talking about, then you should probably Google, I don't know, abdominal breathing. Here's a good point, and you, you might agree with me. Maybe you'll disagree. I'm not too sure. But there's everybody I've seen breathing being taught several different ways. You know, where Louis says, you know, pull it into your belly and push out against your belt. You know, other people will say, no, that's bullshit. You want to be able to pull into your back. When you look at how everybody teaches it and everything that they're doing, the end result is the same no matter yes. who's coaching it. So what I tell people is if you don't understand the way I'm coaching it or Louie's coaching it or Chad Smith is coaching it or somebody else is coaching it, keep looking because yeah. the, the end result is always the same. It's just a little bit different path to get there because what happens is people get really, really confused because they'll say, well, Louie says I'm supposed to push against my belt, but somebody else says, no, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to suck everything in. I'm like, just go through all the steps you know the end result is going to be the same yeah as long as you're not sucking in your belly because stay away from that that's dangerous yeah, yeah. i don't know maybe uh, who was it that uh, let all the air out a deadlifter was it bob peoples um uh, well it's um uh, or who was it maybe I mean, a lot. I mean, I think Paul Check years ago was the one that was talking more about pulling everything in. But if you listen, and this is where people make the mistake, you got to listen to what he's saying. 
you know, what he was talking about is how to best train the transverse abdominis to support the spine. Powerlifters use more than that to support their spine. So to be able to do some of the movements that he was talking about, you know, you know, crunches on a Swiss ball, pulling everything in and strengthening the transverse abdominis, you know, it has carryover to strengthening the psoas and all this other stuff. And then still train, you know, the lift the way, you know, forcing and trying to break the bell, you know, getting as much air into the torso. It, it works. You know, it's yeah. what, what people misconstrue is they're going to take somebody that may say, pull, pull your belly in. But they're not. They, I've never heard one of them say, pull your belly in as hard as you can and squat max loads. No, exactly. That's right. They, they, see what I'm saying? So people kind of, they don't listen all the way or they're not paying attention enough or the message that's going out is being a little distorted to try to set themselves apart in a really fucked up industry. Dude, we're closing in on two hours. I don't want to take your entire day. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's really how long people will listen. Ah, uh, we'll see. Could you talk uh, briefly just about uh, peaking for a meet? I know you're really trying to avoid talking about the Circamax uh, because you need to be really advanced to do it and then you should know it or something to that degree. Well, I, I think so. It's, you know, Nate Harvey, I think, had a lot of his athletes at Buffalo go through Circamax phases for different reasons so you know i think it can have its applications but you know me personally it just has such for the more advanced lifters as we talked about earlier it has such a high recovery demand that they really need to be in shape to be able to do that um i think a lot of people do it prematurely where they would be better off just to take a one or two week deload after a regular dynamic effort cycle and then hit the meat the biggest problem I see with pre-meet strategies from lifters is confidence. You know, they, you can tell a lifter that, at, you know, say 21 days should be the last heavy pull you do. A beginner is going to freak the fuck out. You know, and they're going to think they're going to lose all their gains in 21 days. You know, and, but that's really the hard. So sometimes you need to make it 14 days and just make it a 70%, you know, make it something that's easier to recover from. But the more they compete, the more they become more confident in how important that peaking deload is, because it's, it should be 10 or 15% on your, between your training max and your competitive max. And when I see that training max is 5% or less, then I know they're peaking for the meat absolutely sucks that they're getting nothing out of it. Um, and usually it's because they're not taking enough time. So how do you do it then if you don't use the Circumax? If you would, how many weeks do you need and uh, how would the percentages and everything change? How would max effort work change? I, I fall almost more into a block training system for most of my lifters right now before meat. So let's say, take the deloading out. Four yeah. weeks, maybe five weeks before the meet, I'll have them start wearing, I have geared lifters and raw lifters. The raw lifters become a little bit more of a challenge because they can't do it as long and they don't have to get used to the gear. 
Um, but I'll have them squat to suspension straps. So they're, they're, they're not going to touch the strap, but somebody's going to call them up before the bar hits the strap. So I'll have them start about four inches high five weeks out and basically do max effort work and then use the next few days to see how they recover. If they recover well, then we will go up the next week. If they don't recover well, then we'll go 85% of what they just did that week, the following week. Usually I can get about two weeks, then I need an 85%, then another two weeks and an 85%. But each week I take them down an inch or two. So the last two that they do before the meet is gonna be at parallel at legal depth with whatever federation they're in. You know, if I know the judging is going to be harder, it's going to be lower. I'm not one of these guys that wants somebody to go two inches lower than they have to. You know, I want the maximum weight they can possibly get. Yeah. And these are these are pretty much all for singles. Now, what happens during this phase is usually this is the same day they do their dynamic work and it becomes max effort work. And it's really, really heavy and the majority of them are using gear so their spine is getting pounded i will pull dynamic effort work for the squat the day we start the strap squatting but if i do begin to see i i found that i can pull dynamic effort work away from my more advanced lifters for five weeks without seeing a loss in rate of force development so, so you're keeping this and the max effort work? No, no, I'm pulling the max effort work and putting in sub-maximal work. It could be good mornings. It, and now I have a reference number. So say last night they did um, 40% good mornings for triples of what they squatted the, over the weekend. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that... That's just a correlation that I found works. I wanted it to be medium. I didn't want it to be hard. You know, 60% would be hard um, because this weekend is going to be a little bit of a download. But what happens is if, if I do start to see they're not coming out of the hole as hard as they could. See, I, they have to get used to gear. This is the other variable here. I got to get them used to the fucking gear and the wraps. And there's, they're only strong enough and big enough to do it for so many weeks a year. It's not like they can put it on once a month for a whole year. It, it's just, it doesn't work that way. You can't keep somebody 100% max strength, you know, year round. So, but if I see the rate of force development slows down, two weeks ago, I had to have them do box jumps. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a squat to a box. So yeah. I have, I, you know, they do a box squat, then they jump up on the box. All right, I have them do that midweek for their speed work, and that's enough to get it back to where its baseline is and to hold it. Now, I can't, and I've tried this, I can't do this for more than five weeks. Like the box squat will carry over every other week, or it may need to be every week. Just it depends upon what I see over the weekend. But after five weeks, it's a, it's a shit show. It's fucked up. It, it's, it's, it, it, it does not work. You know, okay. the, the, the rate of force development falls too hard and they're not going to be able to recover it before the meet. So this is where I say a lot of it becomes a lot of block oriented, because before I go into this phase, I make sure that their speed work is the best speed work I know they can do. Some people I see the best work with bands. Some I see with chains. 
some I see with straight weight. So I want them to do the speed work to where I watch that phase and I'm like, holy shit, now they're hitting it hard. And everybody's a little different, you know, from that standpoint. Some people need the chain to squat up against. Some people need the band to help throw them down faster. Some people just are end up becoming dependent on having something um, keeping them to the ground. You know, a, yep. neg a negative of the bands and the chains is it's like squatting on rails. You know, you take them away, then all of a sudden it's like, oh shit. You know, yeah. they, can't, yeah. they can't balance the weight. So I, I push the dynamic work really hard in that, that little phase before this so I can maintain that quality for that five weeks. Or if it doesn't maintain, something as simple as a box jump will be enough to bring it back. That's how I bring their squat in. The way I bring their deadlift in is it doesn't change at all. You know, I just, the, the, we'll, we'll, I'll start to get, it's just right, right now, we're through it now, but the last couple of weeks, it was a matter of trying to figure out what your opener is going to be. Because just, just like when I was at Westside, all the other exercises we do are used to develop the deadlift. So the only real deadlifting I have them do a lot of is speed pulls for technique. And then maybe three times over a 12-week period, they'll do something really heavy for block pulls. But I don't have anybody I have to worry about that doesn't know what to do if the bar gets stuck. So I, I don't have that think-strain issue yeah. with my lifters currently. So that made that easy. Now with the bench, the raw benchers, you know, it's they pretty much stated the same thing up until two weeks before. Then I'll begin to back it off. The last dynamic day, might it's usually just six sets, where it's the highest it might be is 10, and the percents 50%, so like six sets of 50%, where that max effort day during the week is it's going to be a normal max effort day, but it will be the safest max effort movement I know they can do. So It'll be like a floor press or something yes, like that. Yes, because yeah. yes, the worst thing you want to do is put them on a pin press and then them pop a pack, you know, because yeah. it's going from a dead stop. Um, and then that's how I bring them in. And then, you know, if, it, if it, this also allows me the opportunity where if something gets fucked up in the meet, I can add another two weeks really easy and take them to another meet if I need to, but I don't tell them that. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, because it's what all I have to do then because that meat, with the exception of all three lifts being in one day, and as a meat gets closer, usually I have to deal with bicep tendonitis more than anything else. I will put the squat and bench together on the same day. So their shirt work and their, their heavy bench work. The heavy bench work right now does have their, their, or their heavy squat work has their bench work after it. Now, mm. that's only... It's only for three or four weeks. And actually, I've never had to do this before. This is the only time where I felt, you know what, I do not want to have to train around this shit again. Let's just yeah. put these things together because it's usually the squat that's causing the problem. You know, then the biceps flare up. It, it always is with shoulders and everything. It's always. <laughs> so yeah, if I, can, if I can put them both together on the same day, during the during the peaking phase of the meet, then I have all week for restoration and recovery, blood flow work, 
and so far it's it's been great they're they're i'm very happy with how healthy they are they're a couple weeks out i don't know the outcome yet you know the meat will determine the outcome but i think the outcome is going to be really good um but you know two weeks from now i could be saying you know what guys i'm sorry i fucked up but you know they trust me enough to be able to make calls and the other thing i had happen with this cycle that was a little bit different is it is close to the holidays so saturday and sundays are big training days but we were having meets going on they couldn't both they couldn't everybody couldn't be in on the same day so that creates a problem you know because you have multiple sets of eyes looking at a lift and now you only have one other person in there yeah. you know where if it was only one day then i can get more of them in there to have more sets of eyes so there were a lot of factors that played into this pivot that had to be made but even without that pivot they would squat on sunday or squat on saturday and bench on sunday and i've been using the strap wave for two years now did you uh, did i miss that you you used that for both geared and raw power lifters yes yeah so i i will tell this just to listeners in case you because you're talking about starting with high squats and people be like ah oh, west side people they squat high blah 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 this is actually goes way back i think it has a name progressive movement training and paul anderson essentially did similar things in the 50s well here's here's the other reason if if my raw lifters were more advanced both both the lifters i have raw right now they they are their meets are already over and one of them hit their they both hit one hit class one one hit class two so if they were masters or an elite lifters, I, I would not have them be doing this. But they're they're I don't want to say they're weak, right? But they're they're they 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 are. I mean they're they're they need confidence. So if yeah. I can if I can put them four inches higher and then even throw reverse bands on from the last set to where they're handling loads that are gonna be hundred and fifty percent of what they're gonna be able to do in the meet, at least when they pick it out of the rack or they walk it out. It's not gonna feel heavy. No, for them it's not, no, would this work with a 900 pound squatter? Fuck no, yeah. no. So I'm trying to get them acclimated to heavier loads. If they were, and they were elite lifters, they would not be doing this. I would yeah. not have them be doing the strap stuff. I would probably be having them do more along the lanes of, or along the lines of it, like a chain, a circumax with chains. Mm. You know, and that's that I would do before I would introduce the circumax with the bands, just so they get more acclimated, and then have them do the last two weeks without the chains. So that's where, when I think of that long-term cycle that we talked about at the very beginning, yeah. that this is the very front end of a four-year or six-meet plan that I have for them. You know, so. For now, I can throw them in with what the geared lifters are doing just to get the benefit of that overload. They're not going to need that next meet. You know, next meet's really going to be about strength development, where this was more about neural development, confidence, you know, building technique, you know, all those things. So now I'm not going to be able to actually create a program that's in 
it won't be as much in unison as what the geared lifters are anymore. It will be close, but it's going to be different because they can't, when they squat, they don't sit back as hard either. No. So that, that, that throws more quad development needed than hamstring development. So I have to address that separately. Yeah. Do, do you use uh, high boxes for raw lifters? With high boxes, I mean above parallel. Not for speed work, but I don't have them always do boxes either. No. So probably half their squat cycles are without a box. Um, and that's, here's the thing with the raw lifters that I've seen is a raw lifter doesn't sit back as hard as somebody in gear. Somebody in gear is going to sit back with their knee over their ankle. Um, somebody that wears knee wraps is typically going to squat where their knee will drift about midfoot. Somebody who used sleeves, the knee may drift around toe. So what happens a lot of times when you start having them box squat, they do sit back to where their knee is over their ankle. And mm -hmm. then when they go back to squat raw, where their knee is midfoot, they're all fucked up. Their technique is off, their timing is off, the correspondence is off, everything is off. Now, could I change them so they all sit back? Um, possibly. But that's a longer process, and I don't know if it's necessary. And the reason I say that is, while I do think that somebody should sit way back in a squat, I got to be a realist as well. And I look at every raw world record that's out there, and not everybody is sitting way back. You know, most no. of them are sitting down. Like I said, if it's wraps, it's about knee midfoot. So if that's what's working and breaking the world records, I have to be realistic and say that's the way they're that's where they need to be now with gear you can sit way back because the gear you know supports you when you get back in there you know in the hole where the, with when you sit way back the suit helps but the knee wraps don't do shit you know yeah. so now when when you sit down more the knee wraps do a ton where if you took a geared guy and said look i want you to squat so your knee drifts midfoot he ain't going to get shit out of his suit, but he'll get a ton out of the knee wraps. So it's also, you know, if they are raw, I want them to get the most out of whatever gear they're allowed to use. If they sit way back, there's no point in even using the wraps because it's that's why you'll see Croc or Jeremy Frey or years ago. A lot of the multi-fly lifters didn't even wear wraps because they didn't do shit. You know, because yeah. you sit back now you. If you're allowed to wear wraps and you sit way back and they don't do anything, you're giving an advantage to somebody who's sitting down to be able to get the rebound of the wraps. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so that has to play into, even when I'm coaching them on the box spot, I got to catch them and say, no, you got to sit here. You know, so it is exactly the same. Um, so that's some of the logic behind that. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I want to make sure the, the listeners know I love the box spot. I think it's probably the best exercise that's ever been created. So uh, I find I find it very useful for uh, raw lifters, especially if they uh, pull sumo. Yes, I nobody. I mean, everybody I teach how to squat learns on a box. I will not if they come in here. I'm not going to have them free squat for months. You know, they they're they're going to box squat first. Now I will. 
if they're going to be a raw lifter with wraps, I will make sure that, as we talked about, the shin angle is going to be accommodating to wherever they're going to get the most benefit with the equipment they're going to be allowed to use. But to me, yeah. the, the benefit of the box of just being able to say stop when they're on the box and to be able to adjust their bottom position and say stand up, you know, that teaching tool alone with the beginner, because you can't have a beginner stop in the bottom of a squat, a free squat, like stop, no, no. chest up, you know, it's, they're going to be miserable. Just as a teaching tool, there's nothing close. Yeah, no, definitely. And I don't get the whole idea that uh, box squats should only work for geared lifters. It's it's just not the case. No, it's bullshit. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's 100% bullshit because, you know, if you look at the other benefits of the box, you know, being able to go from a static to a dynamic position, the, you know, learning how to explode from that static position, you know, just the ability to teach the technique of the squat more efficiently and faster and safer, you know, the benefits are outweigh any risk and the only risk is if somebody drops on the box yeah don't don't bang your ass against the box for fuck's sake that's really bad news for your spine yes yes so it's i've always said there's a difference between box squatting and squatting to a box so you know some people will go down tap the box just as a depth check that's yeah. okay that's fine i'd rather have somebody call them up you know instead of having a, a physical cue that isn't going to be there to meet but, you know, for athletes and for anybody I'm teaching, for myself, I've exclusively box squatted ever since I've been at Westside. I haven't done a free squat since 1991, except for meets. And we, we would exclusively box squat. All the, the only free squat we ever did was in a meet. I mean, uh, also to the listeners out there, the box squat, it's not the same thing as a pause squat. And it's not the same thing as a pin squat. No, 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 no. The pin squat, I mean, that's easy. To, the, the pin squat, all the force gets displaced throughout the pins. You know, and a box squat, the force gets displaced throughout you, you know, the, 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 the body. You know, it's kind of like we sell something that's called a shoulder saver pad. It's a small pad that goes on a bar. That's completely different than a board press board. And people don't understand why. And it's like, well, when you bring a bar down to a board press board, and that bar sits on the wood, it gets displaced throughout the entire piece of wood. All yeah. right, so say that's 12, 14 inches, where if it's a small pad, then only a three quarters of an inch is there, and then it's rounded, there is no displacement. You know, so the stabilization is still there. It's, it's the same kind of thing with, there's a vast difference between a pin pull and, and pulling a block pull. Yes, and everybody thinks it's the same, and it's not even close to the same. It's, it's the, the weight displacement, which is yeah. another aspect of training. So, so what is uh, your hate towards uh, the pins? Because uh, I saw uh, the last few days you hated on the uh, pin squats, you hated on the pin bench presses. What's the hate, man? The, the, here's the thing with <laughs> it is... There's, there's no such thing as a good exercise or a bad exercise. You know, I'm in total agreement with that. There's people that just suck at doing the movement. So the problem with uh, a pin press is people will get underneath it, and then they're going from a complete relaxed position, and then they just flex into the bar. And they're, they, they're, not, they don't, they're not being told, you need to get underneath there, slowly tighten everything up. 
Like you do an isometric. Yes. So you do an isometric, then you push it off of the pin. You know, if you just lay into it or blast into it, the odds of blowing a pecker through the roof. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the other thing that kind of pisses me off with these things is people will call them concentric only movements, but you're still fucking lower in it. You know, (laughs) you know, it's just being done reverse. So it's to me, that's like just complete stupidity. Somebody, somebody will show like, uh, and they'll say, you know, concentric only good mornings. They're great because, you know, it works the concentric, but, you know, it doesn't, you know, and the eccentric makes it harder to recover from. Well, then do the fucking good morning and rack it. Yeah. You know, or what, what we did at Westside is we did them off straps. So you would stand up and then the training partners would help lower it. You know, I guess on a pin press, you could, you know, press it up and then drop it. But there's still oh, the eccentric component, you know, the, now the proper way to do a concentric only movement, which is a great max effort exercise to do if you're having a hard time recovering, because it will take that off. You're going to do the pin press and then you're going to rack it. Then you're going to take it out, set it back on the pins and do the next set. You know, so that's where it comes from. It's just the stupidity on how people explain it sometimes. And I know what, you know, people will put things out there to make themselves look like gurus. Like, hey, do concentric only work. It's the best thing. It's great for recovery. And then the video they post, there's no fucking concentric only. <laughs> They're just doing the reverse. Yeah, yeah I'm like, yeah, it's, 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 it's stupid. And yeah. I, I don't want to call people out directly. I think that's very unprofessional. But, yeah. you know, I will make posts, you know, kind of slamming on how stupid some of this is because these People will act like they know what the hell they're doing, and they don't. It's like, I'm not going to go out there and act like I know how to fucking train a football player on how to do a T-drill. You know, I'm, I'm sure I could, like, look it up online and kind of, like, bullshit my way through it. But I'm going to look like an idiot because somebody that does it all the time is going to say, Jesus Christ, look how fucking stupid that is. Well, that's me looking at these guys when they're trying to make, you know, and it's everywhere. Yeah, that's something that coaches or online profiles or just about anyone should really get better at just saying, well, I don't know. It's not that hard. You know, this is the thing that amazes me all the time is I get a lot of compliments because I'm real and I tell the truth. I'm like, should that really be something that people are complimenting? Is it that rare? It is, though. You know, it shouldn't be because no. it's, not, it's not that hard to say, I don't know. I have other, you know, it's, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I know what my scope of practice is and I, and I have no problem saying I don't know because I have no responsibility to try to bullshit something I don't think is going to help. You know, it's, it's just crazy. The, um, but the, the other thing that just makes me laugh all the time and we just created a t-shirt logo for it is you know i I put that slogan out there that says only three spots left yeah yeah. every fucking trainer puts it out there and so we just made a shirt that says only three spots left so i can't wait to launch that stupid thing (laughs) but now i see people start somebody sent me yesterday a a bunch of pictures of uh, a couple dudes that wrote only four spots left i'm like oh come on man oh fuck you Either way, it's still funny because it's like every post they make, it's like only three spots left. And it's like if you were really good at what you were doing, I mean, it's online training is a lot like personal training. 
it's a referral based business. Yes. You know, so, you know, I could help, you know, if somebody is an online trainer, that's really good at what they're doing, put out decent content, say if it's Instagram, put out decent content for a couple of weeks and then make one post that says, here's what I do. You know, here's my services that's separate from the content and then go back to the content that yeah. way you're not because nothing pisses people off. And this is what I don't believe people get is people will make these infographic type of posts to try to solicit, you know, clients. It doesn't work because as soon as they read the post, they're like, oh, that's good. This is inter this is good. I'm learning something. Then they get hit with, we'll buy my program. Yeah. Or for more information, come to my site. It's like you just negated everything that you wrote beforehand, which actually was pretty good. Yeah, don't don't sell in every fucking post. Don't sell in every breath you take. Yes, just write what you need to write and then remind the people enough so they know what you do. It's pretty fucking simple. You know, if I don't, on my Instagram, I... Now, on my story, I'll put if we have a sale, but that shit goes away in 24 hours. Yeah. But I rarely ever make a post on my feed of sales that we have. And we have sales all the time. Now, you can bet your ass coming into Black Friday, you know, coming into the December, November, I will start making posts soon, you know, but people will be cool with it because I don't do it every fucking post exactly. all year round. It's going to be like, hey, look, our equipment sales going on right now. It's seriously the best prices of the year. Check it out. Only three spots left. <laughs> and then <laughs> and I, put it out. <laughs> and, and man, I, I can't thank you enough for all the people listening right now. You need to go to, first of all, you need to follow Dave at, uh, at Under the Bar on Instagram because he's fucking hilarious there. There is so much comedy stuff, there is so much good advice and all kinds of stuff, but also just go to the website because I can't thank you enough for putting out all the articles and uh, the q a of course and out of the blue you will s just post like hey here's a free ebook take it like what the fuck where did that come from who does that <laughs> i mean the, the the reason why the company was founded was to, to to give back for everything that i you know this has been my whole life you know since i was 13 years old and everybody that's had a significant impact on my life i wasn't paying them for what they taught me you know, so the only this is this is why we don't charge for content is, yeah. you know, it's it has to continue to keep going that way because, you know, the um, the reason why online training exists today is because people were answering questions on forums and Q&A's 10, 15 years ago for free. And providing yeah. help in a digital world that created an environment for people to actually be able to monetize 20 years later. The reason why people were answering questions on the forums 20 years ago is because they had people on telephones and gyms that were helping them for free as they were in the gym trying to become better power lifters and lifters. The reason why those people were helping the people that were in the gyms for free is while they came up in their prime, they had somebody that was helping them for free. So you can go all the way back to the first 
university strength coaches were lifters that were helping the athletes for free. And you can go back to the first personal trainers that were fitness instructors and health clubs, basically just hired to clean equipment and shit like that, helping the people in the gyms for free. So all these people over the period of these past four or five decades have created the industry that we have today. So by their giving back and helping other people, they created you know, basically a multi-billion dollar industry for people to actually make money and to do what they love to do and be paid for it, which didn't exist. Hell, it didn't exist when I was in college. So no. now, now that it exists, nobody wants to give back. So nobody wants to plant the seeds for the next generation to be able to have better income sources or better jobs or so forth than what we have today. And at the root of all this is, you know, meatheads have been helping meatheads since the dawn of time. And it's just what we do, you know, so that's kind of the whole stuff. That's the biggest fear I have for the industry today. That's why I hate the fitness industry. That everyone charges. Yeah, I like the strength industry. I because mm -hmm. there's a, still a lot of hope there because it's really made of you know meatheads that just the, the strength industry for the most part. And it's, there's always outliers, but the strength industry for the most part are people that are helping other people because they just love to fucking lift weights. Mm -hmm. All right, they it may not be their profession. You know, they may hang drywall. They may you know deliver appliances. They may be a truck driver, but they just fucking love to lift weights. Yeah. So they help other people online or in the gym that just fucking. So they're doing it out of passion and love. And that's what's always going to keep the strength industry awesome. The fitness industry, I don't see that. It's like everybody that gets into the fitness side of the industry is into it for one reason. To try to fucking make money, not to try to help people become better. Becoming better is secondary to making money. And the strength industry, helping be, you know, making money can be secondary to helping people become better. And, you know, it's just a reminder that I like to always put out there to people is, you know, the more you help people, the more you're securing, you know, future generations to be able to actually have jobs. But a lot of these fuckers need to remember the jobs that they have now and the income they have now wasn't because of the seeds they planted. It was no. because of the seeds people planted 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And it's their responsibility to not lay concrete, but to harvest soil for the next generation. That's why people say that you are real. Because this live, learn, pass on, it's not a fancy commercial slogan. It's really, um, I think everyone can tell, it's something you actually live by. It can't be. Here's the thing with this. It can't be a commercial slogan because you can never make money off of it. You can't make serious money off of it. It doesn't happen. But let's put it this way. We do sell what I feel is the highest quality strength equipment made or amongst the highest. No doubt. And we do well with that. It's 50% of our market. We also sell anything that can help people become stronger. That's kind of where we draw the line. Our number one best commodity the thing that we do better than everybody else is help people become stronger and we don't charge a cent for that all right so what company takes their number one asset or their number one attribute and ability 
and gives it away for free. You know, so it's that this is the, and the, the intent was, like I said, to always help people. My intent was never to create this hundred million dollar business. I don't want to deal with fucking 500 employees. And, uh, you know, because then I wouldn't be able to do what I what I what I feel I'm called to do, which is to help people. You know, so now by selling the quality products, I mean, we need to do I mean, we have to have sales or we can't put out free content. Yeah, you know, there is there is a catch 22 there and you don't want to sell shit because you're going to go out of business. But it costs money to put out, you know, to have an editorial staff and a media staff and all the other kind of stuff. But because of that, though, I think my realism can be a little bit better because I don't have to worry about, oh, if I say this, I'm not going to get clients. I don't fucking care. What I care about is that the customers and the people that support Elite FTS, if they're going to hire somebody to train them, that they actually get value and that they don't get fucked over. And if they keep getting fucked over by the same people, then I will send that person you know, a message saying, look, you need to clean your shit up or I'm going to start telling people you suck. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's because it's their... They're all our customers, right? I mean, we're all responsible for everything. But if you know, if I got customers that have been supporting me for ten years, and then I say, or they say, "Hey, look, I've been working with so and so, and it's going great." That's that's fine. I will use that. I will recommend that person if other people ask. As soon as I have one of these people message me and say, "Hey, I work with this trainer, and this trainer sucks," I'll never refer that person again. And I do refer people all the time. And when I when I refer them. I tell the people who DM me, don't tell them I sent you, but let me know how it goes in eight weeks. So you don't want the credit from the trainer? No, I want the feedback. Uh, yeah. I want the feedback from the client because yeah. the client can come back and say, this guy was really good. And then I know I can refer more people. to. I get people ask me every day for referrals. You know, and a lot of the times I try, I, I, most of the time I try to talk them out of it, to be honest. I think a beginner, and I think this is a lost skill, I think a beginner needs to navigate their way on their own for a little bit. You know, a coach has its place and time, but I think, you know, people still need to go in the gym and fuck around and, and figure out how to do things, you know, and then it's almost like they need to become ready for a coach. Yeah, in a sense, yeah. I think they'll have more respect for the coach if they do that. Um, the worst thing that they can do, I think, is hire a coach. Like, they just started training. They like it. They want to do a powerlifting meet, and they hire somebody to prep them for a, for a meet. I think it's a disservice to the coach because this person could decide after four weeks, I don't want to do it. Well, even if they're paying you on a four-week billing cycle, you still have to plan out 12 or 16 weeks. The, your biggest expense as a coach is setting the program up. Yeah. You know, making the modifications, that's, that's kind of easy. Well, it's not easy, but, I mean, it takes a skill set, but it doesn't require anywhere near the time is laying down that foundation and doing the needs analysis and everything else. The worst thing that you want as a coach is a lot of beginners that are just going to fucking leave and not listen, you know, because then you're working all the time and you're not making any headway. Damn, I feel like we should have an entire another episode just on uh, coaching training and online training and the pitfalls and everything because that's a huge topic and it's a really interesting one and it keeps getting more and more important because nowadays everyone is an online trainer yeah it should be 
Yeah, we should, uh, let's, let's, let's probably be a good place to cut it off because this could end up being another two hours. Worth of <laughs> but I'll, t- I'll tell you this, you know, give me, let me get through the holiday season. Send me another email. We'll set another one up and we'll tackle that topic. Oh, man, that would be great because it's been a blast talking to you. I've enjoyed it. This has been a, this is, I, I don't know how many, I don't look to see how many followers or anything. Anybody has. I'll do anybody's podcast. But I've, had, I've enjoyed this one because you're not asking me the same shit everybody else does over and over and over. It's like, this, is, this has been a good time. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate being on because it's for me to get and talk and two hours go by. I had no idea it's two hours. Yeah. Usually after, with some of these podcasts, man, after like 30 minutes, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's, it's disheartening sometimes because it's like, did you even do any research? And... You know, to have conversations, it's a good thing. You know, the best part for me is I don't have to do any research because I've been following your stuff. I've been following Louis' stuff. And I, when I say I follow, I read everything. I watch everything. I listen to everything. So I just, what do, what do I want to know? What hasn't been covered? So that's what I think you did a great job of here. I, oh, I really do. I think I think you were able to deep dive into some topics that people don't ask me about, and they're you know what as you said with a lot of them they're really important, you know because it's the superficial can only go so far. Yeah. All right. Then I thank you for your time again, Dave, and uh, hopefully we can do this again after the holidays. Then. Yep. Sounds good. I'm all for it. Okay. That's it for my little talk with Dave Tate. Or well. Little talk. Damn, I think we talked for two and a half hours or so. But man, I gotta tell you, Dave, he's a great guy, and he has a lot of stuff to say. And and hey, here's another thing. Whatever you think about the conjugate system or West Side Barbell or any of that stuff, you gotta pay attention to what Dave has to say. He's been around for a long time. And he knows what he's talking about. And regardless of what you're doing, pay attention. Because he's dropping so many knowledge bombs. It's crazy. Well, hopefully Dave will be back uh, next year. We will see. But if you like this uh, interview, please subscribe. And give a review. Five stars. Hint, hint. It really does help. This is a guerrilla project. There is no budget behind this. So uh, any way you can help, please help brother out. We'll see if Dave will be back next year. But we will be back already next week with another guest. So stay tuned. Ciao.